Welcome, my name is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and we thank you for taking some time to listen to some audio recordings from the pulpit of the Riverview Baptist Church. Our desire is to show the Lord high, holy, and lifted up, as well as try to be a blessing to those through the Word of God. Please enjoy this message, and we pray that it will be a blessing to your life. to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the book of 1 Peter. The book of 1 Peter, chapter number 2. The book of 1 Peter in chapter number 2. We are finishing up this segment of the study of 1 Peter, the theme of strengthening the brethren. We'll take a dramatic pause to go through another Sunday school series. Then we'll come back and finish off the, the rest of 1 Peter at a little bit later date. But as we've been traveling through the book of 1 Peter, understanding that this is written for the idea of strengthening up Christians to live the Christian life they ought to live, so that way when persecution comes, hard times come, that they learn to behave as a Christian before the hard times come. Which is exactly what we're going to be seeing here in the book of 1 Peter chapter number 2. 1 Peter chapter number 2, and if you won't, don't mind, notice with me starting first of all at verse number 11. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse number 11. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man, for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme, or as unto governors, as them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God, that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men." as free, and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. And with this, as we see this passage here, we could see the idea that of Christian behavior, Christian behavior, how we live our lives. Now, <clears throat> with this, understand that now is the time to start developing the habit of obedience to Christ. Now is the time to start behaving as a Christian before the persecution comes. If you don't mind, we'd like to take some time to examine this passage, but we understand that here it's giving more of a practical as it's talking to the idea of how a Christian ought to behave itself. Now, if one thing, as we've watched the world implode on itself last year and the beginning of this year, one of the things is that it has exposed the nature of man. And it's from spectrum to spectrum. You don't have to be a political party for your behavior to be exposed. In fact, it's even exposed the conduct of Christians not following after Christ by their attitudes and the way that they work. There is a difference. If you were to say, what would be a, a word that would describe the personality of men in response to the things going on, it'd be rebellion. 
No matter what, there's rebellion. Rebellion against authority, whether it's between police officers, which has the idea here, or it's rebellion against rulers and what they are trying to do, whether it's rebellion against so many things. But God has set up an idea of Christianity that is to be different. Now, remember, the greatest evidence that biblical Christianity works is the evidence of a changed life of a different life. Now remember, being different is not the goal. God is the goal. But as we follow after Christ, we will be different. But that's part of the problem, is that most people don't want to be different. It's hilarious now that they send young kids to college and they said, all right, you need to think for yourself. But if you're going to think for yourself, this is what you're going to believe. This is what you're going to say. This is... And they all become the same Because they've been indoctrinated the same, but told that they are thinking independently. And they're not. It's backwards thinking. We understand that our world is topsy-turvy. And the darker and the more rebellious and the more perverse the world is, the life of Christians should be drastically different in our behavior. In our response to God. Now remember, we're not working on changing behavior. We're changing belief. And belief affects behavior. That the goal of the Christian is to follow after Christ. And if they are following after Christ, then their behavior will change. You know that we were talking about this weekend. We had a camp and we were training young uh, teenagers how to work in preparation for camp. And one of the things that they were speaking about this week is the idea of work. And that if there is someone that's unmotivated, there's very little we can do about it. Now we could try to work on the outside, but the problem is in the inside. That's where the problem is. The same thing's true with the behavior. You could try to work on the outside and you can eventually get someone so they carry their Bible and they walk like this and they dress a certain way, but they could be so away from God in the inside that what needs to happen is that the inside needs to change and that will make an outside transformation. That it is the inside, their walk with God that must be fixed. There's very little that we can do as much as I would like to. I can't to shake a teenager and make them do something. It doesn't work. The problem is the inside. That's what needs to happen. Same thing with a Christian. It's the inside, their desire to follow after Christ. However, as we're following after Christ, our outside behavior should follow suit. And it will be different from the responses of the rest of the world. Notice, if you don't mind, where it says this, uh, talking about the behavior. Verse number 12, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. We're supposed to study God's word in order to behave the way that the Bible teaches the Christians to behave. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Peter in this passage deals with the idea of our behavior changing because 
of our following after Christ. If you don't mind, let's actually examine this and let's find some things in here. First of all, let's see this dearly beloved. Dearly beloved. Notice who he's addressing in verse number 11. Dearly beloved. Dearly beloved. God is, through the Holy Spirit here, addressing those who are Christians. This is a term of endearment that carries the idea that he, they belong to Christ, that we're accepted in the beloved. And he's addressing us. Notice what else he uses to describe us. I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims. The word stranger carries the idea of someone that doesn't belong there. And pilgrims is someone who's searching uh, passing through, they're, they're traveling, they're sojourners. And we understand that this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. I'm a citizen of a heaven. And that I'm just here traveling through. But while I'm here, I do have to interact with this world. But I have to interact it as if my home is somewhere else. That I'm representative of a different country. I'm a pilgrim. I'm a stranger. I don't belong here. And so therefore I'm not going to fit here. And that we should be different. Notice as it goes on. Dearly beloved I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims. Abstain from fleshly lust. Which war against the soul. Now that word lust. Sometimes people a throw against there. That word lust doesn't always carry the idea of uh, sexual desires, but it carries the idea of a longing from the flesh, a desire that we have. So abstain from fleshly lust. Meaning we understand we're in a world that loves to feed the flesh. It loves to feed the flesh. And by the way, our flesh loves to be fed. It loves to eat. It lo there are things that our flesh wants and it craves. Now, it's not going to do a running list because sometimes our flesh craves different things. Sometimes we desire something that's not ours to have. That's called covetousness. But that's, by the way, this is what American commercialism is all based off of. Commercials are to try to make you desire something you don't currently have. Get a nice flame-broiled Whopper upon the grill. Melted cheese with onions on top of it. Serve it with a good Dr. Pepper. You may say, well, I had something else planned for lunch. Now I'm not satisfied with what I have for lunch because I want the Whopper. Has your flesh ever done that? Crave something? Desired something? There was an old preacher of Lester Roloff who just constantly desired to be uh, filled with the Spirit and to be desired of God. And he says, everything my flesh wants, I have to say no to. Like when I wake up in the morning, I take a cold shower. The reason why is my flesh wants a nice warm shower. And, and I don't want to feed my flesh in any way. Now, I'm not that spiritual. I like the nice warm shower. But we understand the principle of what he was saying. He recognized there were things that his flesh wants. By the way, sometimes the things that your flesh wants is not evil. It's not wicked. But it's still a desire of the flesh. And you could feed that desire of the flesh without it being sinful or wicked. But as you feed your flesh, it becomes stronger. And when your flesh is stronger, when you come to the place of making a spiritual decision, whichever is stronger, your flesh or your spirit, is going to win that decision. You understand inside of every born-again Christian, when you come to know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, the Holy Spirit who is God lives inside of you. 
But it does not eradicate this old, stupid, rotten, awful flesh. And so there's a tug of war going it all the time. It's kind of like the old farmer who was with a preacher and the preacher went to visit him. They were sitting up on the porch drinking iced tea and two of the uh, rancher's dogs started to fight and wrestle with each other. And the pre uh, preacher leaned over and said, which one's going to win? And the rancher said, the one that I feed the most. That's exactly right. That if you haven't been in your Bible, you know, sometimes I'll scream and holler that, that the greatest thing you could do on a daily basis is to read the Bible for yourself. But I also go say, just reading a chapter a day keeps the devil away. It's a horrible saying. Because you're not feeding your, your spirit enough. You need to saturate yourself with the word of God. You need to feast on God's word. You have to be in God's word. Or you will not be strong enough when those spiritual decisions come. When it comes time of reacting. Now, the wonderful thing about reactions is that you don't have time to react. You don't have time to say... Ow, I stubbed my toe. How should I respond? Let me think. You just respond, right? Well, how am I going to respond? What is stronger when that time comes? Your spirit or your flesh? You say, are you sure? Yeah, go at home. Go put up a picture frame and hit the wrong nail and see what comes out. Well, what comes out is usually what is stronger at the time. By the way, you can curb that by following after Christ and feeding your spirit so you do respond properly. Someone cuts you off in traffic. Something bad happens. How do you respond is normally based off of which part of you is stronger at that time. Again, we're talking about the behavior and that we have to feed the spirit and the Bible says, abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul. There is a constant fight between the flesh and the spirit. They're constantly warring against each other. And if we are going to live the way that we should, then we have to be careful of not feeding the flesh, not giving it what it wants. Now, by the way, let me pause here. Your flesh will lie to you at this time and say, well, then fine. As a Christian, you're just not going to have any fun. That's a lie. That's what your flesh likes to tell you. Your flesh wants to put a picture in your mind that if you're going to live the Christian life, you're going to live in a Spartan room with no pictures, just brick walls, and you're not going to have, you're going to have just a hard bed, and you're not going to enjoy it. That's a lie that your flesh wants to try to tell you. God says he wants to give us life, but life more abundant. The flesh wants to tell us all the things that we're missing out on and all the things that we're missing because we have to just be a Christian. Whereas God promises life more abundant. You'll live, you'll enjoy life a lot more following after him than you ever could feeding your own flesh. There's a conflict that we have to abstain from fleshly lust. There's a second thing that we see as we examine this passage, this duty to live right. This duty to live right. Notice with me in verse 12. Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles. Here it's talking about the word conversation. The word conversation is a Bible word that carries the idea of our behavior. That we're supposed to behave honest. Now we can't stop 
people from saying things that are untrue. But we can control how we respond to it. Notice again verse 12. Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles. That whereas they speak against you as evil doers. They are going to speak you as evildoers. They're going to say things that are not true. Sometimes it's because of misunderstanding. Sometimes it's maliciousness. When Nero burnt down Rome, he uh, <laughs> had to find a scapegoat. Who can I blame? I don't want to blame me. So who can I blame? Well, let's blame Christians. Christians, first of all, don't have a country, so we don't have to worry about a country rebelling or declaring war on us. But second thing is that people already had a misunderstanding of Christians. You know what they talked about Christians in those days? They said they're cannibals. Oh yeah? Those people, they eat the flesh of people. Jesus said, this is my body, eat of my flesh. They're cannibals! And by the way, because they're hiding in the catacombs, that's proof they're cannibals. Worse more, they're vampires. They drink the blood. They brag of They have sacraments where they drink the blood. Now are those things true? They are not. But could you see where some ill-informed person could get gossip and believe that? Absolutely. And so people who have a misunderstanding, maybe it's pride, maybe whatever else, but they misunderstand Christians. Maybe they don't know, or maybe they are purposely trying to attack Christians. And that's going to happen. The Bible gives a promise, yea, that all that get, live godly shall suffer persecution. I was talking with a lady the other day and she said, before I came to this church, I never heard that. What a surprise to me to find out that God promised I'm going to live persecution. I've never heard that. Well, welcome to the Bible. It's going to happen. People are going to misunderstand. They're going to misabuse. Why? Well, first of all, hurting people hurt people. And people are hurting. And they're looking for the nearest whipping boy. And for someone who seems like they're not going to fight back, that seems like a good whipping boy. You guys know what a whipping boy is, right? That's an old colloquial term dealing the idea that in uh, a lot of the royalty families inside of um, uh, Europe, you were not allowed to touch the prince. Well, a prince, like any other child, gets in a lot of mischief. So in order to punish the prince, they would take another child and spank him on behalf of the prince, hoping that would teach the prince the lesson. That's where the term whipping boy comes from. Well... People do use Christians as whipping boys. Instead of them admitting that they have an issue, well, they're going to allow someone else to take that punishment for them. It's their fault! And they'll come up with a reason. Christians do sometimes become the whipping boy. This is what it's talking about. Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they're doing wrong. We have to counter that by your good works, which they should behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. You know, people watch how Christians respond. And when the hurting people come, the convicted people come and they blame Christians, they also watch how you respond. If you respond in the flesh, they note that and then write off your Christianity. There's nothing to that. There's no substance to it. But when we respond differently, they take note of that. You know, as many times as I yelled at you, you still want to help me? 
that baffles them. I hope that you've got to the place where someone said that to you at one time or another. Because that's something that's powerful. They watch that. They watch as things happen to you. And you could still have faith in God. It baffles them. And it draws them close. So many people will get saved because they watched a true Christian live. Now, by the way, the world is tired of hearing about Christianity. They want to meet one. They hear about it all the time, but they've never really met a genuine sold out, I believe in God and I'm trusting in God, Christian. When they meet one, it makes an impact on them. There's something different about them. Their faith is real. I've seen how they respond to problems. I've seen how they respond when the boss talks to them at work. I've seen there's something different about it. Where does that come, by the way? It comes as we follow after Christ and he changes us from the inside out. But the Bible says that we should live differently. There should be a way of right and honor that we have who Lost people can see the good works in the midst of when we're being harassed, when we're being yelled at, when we're being persecuted, when bad things happen, that we're still able to trust God. You understand, this is the best type of testimony. You know, we can knock on doors, and we do, but we can only impact them so much. It could be that God was look, already preparing someone at the door, and they're ready to get saved. But for the most part, that doesn't happen. Where's the most change ha happen? Where's the most impactful? People we work with. People we live with. Neighbors we're around. Because they see the evidence of a changed life. They see the situations that we go through. And they say there's something to this. That's what this is speaking of here. Is that our duty to live right. There's one more thing I want to show you here. And this is the danger of misusing our liberty. Danger of misusing our liberty. Now we spoke about individual soul liberty before, but we understand that the idea of individual soul liberty states that since all of us have equal access to God, priesthood of the believers, meaning that you have as much access to God as I do, we could go through Jesus Christ and we could talk to him at any time. But the idea of individual soul liberty says since we all have access to God, we have the right and responsibility to find God's will for ourselves. We have liberty. With that liberty, it can be abused. We have the freedom to do whatever we want and behave what we want, knowing that one day we're going to stand before God and give an account. Someone said that life is like a cafeteria line. You could take whatever you want, but there's a cashier at the end. You have the freedom. Now, why did God give us the freedom? Because what serves the master better? A servant who's forced to or the servant who chooses to? God gives us the freedom to choose to follow after him. Now, he hasn't given us the liberty of sin, meaning he didn't give us freedom so we could go, hey, I want to go sin. He gave us the freedom to choose him. Unfortunately, because of our flesh and other things, we abuse that freedom, that liberty to go do whatever we want. Hey, I can go do whatever I want. That's fine. Woohoo! 
But you're going to miss out so much because there is a payday someday. You will stand before God and give an account. And you can miss out things on this life and miss out things on the other life. Notice as we go on verse number 13 as he now talks about what we have responsibility for. Submit. Oh, people hate that word. That means to place yourself under the authority of. And remember that submission is always a heart issue. For example, I gave this illustration to the teenagers this weekend. If a teenager was told to go clean their room, fine, and stomp off and go do the deed, did they submit? Absolutely not. Because submission is done with the heart. Submission is done with the heart. So the Bible says, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man. Notice this, the reasoning why, for the Lord's sake. Why do we obey any biblical authority? Because of God. This answers the question, well, what happens when authority is wrong? I'm not doing it for you. I'm doing it for the Lord. I'm trusting God with that authority. I'm trusting God is going to be right. And by the way, we all have authority. Every single one of us. We have children who have parents and teachers as authority. We have wives that has a husband as authority. Church folks have a pastor's authority. We have a president who's authority. We have governor's authority. You say, but what happens if my authority is wrong? Can you trust the Lord with him? Let me give you a statement that's helpful and very helpful. Um, before I give the statement, let me give a preface. Pride is an awful thing. Awful thing. And the worst type of pride is when we're right. That's the worst type of pride. Because we feel justified. And if we're right and authority's wrong. Oh, bless God. I, and we get to the idea where you start running over conversations. How to say things. How to fix that authority. Here's the statement. It is not your job to fix authority. It is not your job to fix authority. Then whose job is it? God's. You see, I cheat and go to my boss and let him take care of authority. And he could do a better job than I ever could. My wife has mastered this somewhat. That if uh, her husband and her pastor, can you imagine she's got a double dose of me. I'm her pastor and her husband. That's harder than what it sounds like. All right. And let's say that her husband is stupid which he is from time to time. And I give something that doesn't make sense to her. Now, she can make a biblical appeal. May I also say submission is not silence. It's saying the right thing at the right time at the right place with the right spirit. It's not silence. There's a way to biblically make an appeal, which is what I taught the teenagers. I taught a class on biblical authority. I guess it just lined up, but I, I'm ready to go because I took two sessions teaching them about biblical authority and how to make an appeal. But if the appeal is denied, authority still wants to be stupid. I'm still the authority. She goes, I'm going to submit to him as unto the Lord, trusting in him. In the next chapter, we're not going to turn there, but in first chapter, or first Peter chapter uh, Three, and verses 1 through 9, it speaks about a scenario where a husband is not obeying the word and the wife wants to uh, win him to the Lord. Well, she could win him without the, without the word of God, meaning her job is not to take the Bible and beat him over the head with it. But instead, her job 
it, oh, let's just turn there. First Peter chapter number three. First Peter three, verse one. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they may without the word be won by the conversation. Remember, we explained that conversation carries the idea of our behavior by the behavior of the wives. Why they, the husbands, behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. Whose adorning let it not be the outward adorning and the plating of the hair, but the wearing of the gold or putting on the apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart. That's what we've been saying, that we work on the inside following after Christ. He changes the outside. So a wife is supposed to concentrate on her walk with God and allow God to change her. So now she's responding properly to her husband. Her husband says, what happened to her? And when it stays consistent, he's going to say, whatever she has is real. This is what it's speaking about. The same thing I just said. But let it be the hidden man of the heart, which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. For after this manner in old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves being in subjection under their own husbands, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are, as long as you do well and not afraid with amazement. Now here it gives the illustration of Sarah. Now Sarah, who's her husband? Abraham. And in the Bible, three times it declares Abraham as what relationship to God? That he is the friend of God. Three times! And so someone says, that's a horrible illustration. Here's Sarah, who has the husband, who's called the friend of God. She had it easy. Well... There happened to be a time that Abraham got backslidden. The friend of God got backslidden? He did. And he went to Egypt. He wasn't supposed to. And while he was in Egypt, his wife, who is about 50, 60 years old, who is still just beautiful, the Pharaoh goes, hey, hey, who is she? Hey, Sarah, tell him you're my sister. What? I'm afraid he's going to kill me and steal me. So tell me I'm your brother. So that way he doesn't feel like he has to kill me to get to you. Because you're beautiful. What? Okay. Lord, my husband's an idiot. But I'm submitting to you because I'm trusting that you could fix the idiot. Uh, she may not have said those words, but you get the idea. She has to trust God. And so Pharaoh says, hey, who are you? I'm his sister. Great. So you're available? Let's get married. She look at her husband. And he, Lord, I'm going to have to trust you to make this to work. And you know what God did? He, he did it. He made it so there was no sin involved between Sarah and, and Pharaoh. And so much that Pharaoh gave riches to Abraham. He came out of Egypt wealthier. You think that was an easy thing for Sarah to submit to? Now, probably your husband, your pastor, your authority has not asked you to do something like that. You say, okay, that was one time. Well, he made it to the promised land. Sarah's now about 80 years old. Still looking great. He shows up. There's a king by the name of Abimelech. Abimelech means king, by the way, so it's a title. And Abimelech comes and says, hey, who are you? And Abraham said, tell him you're my sister. Again? 
Didn't we just go through this? Tell him you're my sister. I'm a sister. God, you're going to have to fix this again. My authority is wrong, but I have to submit to my authority as unto you. I am trusting you to fix this. What we understand is that it what it is not our job to fix biblical authority. Now, I'm sure she made a biblical appeal and he said, quiet, just do what I told you to do. Lord, I can't trust my authority, but I can trust you. And so I'm going to submit to you, expecting that you will turn this out right. And once again, God protected Sarah and Abimelech from committing sin. And revealed it and went over. Now, these are two times that the friend of God, Abraham was wrong. And his wife had to submit anyways. This is in the context. This is the next chapter of what we're talking about. So Peter's definitely not being inconsistent. He is telling us the idea that we are supposed to submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. Now again, this gets hard when authority's wrong. Because pride gets involved. I know more than authority. Yeah, so what? There's still authority. You say, but, 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 yeah, I know this is, this is hard. But it's different. Because do you think that any lost person is going to just <laughs> submit to authority they believe is wrong? Absolutely not. We've watched it over the last year and a half. There's something different. And it's the idea, can we trust God? Now, I teach teenagers, so usually the next question is a what-if question. Whenever teenagers ask what-if, they're looking for a reason to rebel. But what if this? All right, let's play what-if. Let's say what-if, and it's coming soon, the government says, I'm no longer able to teach the Bible, or I'm no longer able to teach some things from the Bible. It's already in Canada and Uzbekistan. If you're found with a Bible, it is two years in prison. 74 countries of the world have outlawed the Bible. Why not America? All right, so let's say it happens. Then I have to choose to submit. Now, submit is with the heart. So the government says that I can't preach the Bible. Then with submission, I say, I'm sorry. I cannot in good conscience obey the law, but I will submit to the consequences that happen. And if that means go to jail, to whatever else. Now again, this sounds so different and so wrong to our normal thinking. If that means when I submit... If they throw me in jail, I'm not going to, Ah, God's going to rain down fire on you. I'm going to trust God that he could use my testimony to get something. We see this in England. In England, there was a Baptist preacher who was living in England with a covenical law. The covenical law says that all, um, all people inside of the British Empire had to attend church on Sundays. And not just any church, the Anglican church. Okay, well, here's a Baptist pastor who's preaching, and he gets arrested for disobeying the covenical law. He stands before Judge Winthrop, and Judge Winthrop says, I understand you're a small congregation and things here. You haven't had a lot of education, so you know what? We're going to give you a break. If you promise never to break that law again, we'll be glad to uh, just wipe this away and I'll show you mercy. He says, I'm sorry, sir, I can't do that. 
He wasn't disrespectful to the judge. I'm sorry, sir, I can't do this. What do you mean? I'm trying to go after the extra mile. You know, I understand that uh, you're a pastor of a small church. You know what? Let's, let's just compromise a little bit more. If you go to the government and get their permission, how about this? Um, we'll just let you go with a promise that you do that. He says, sir, I can understand what you're trying to do, but I can't do that either. God's the one who told me to preach, not government. Well, listen, my other option is to throw you in jail. And I've been trying to give you, you've got a blind daughter. Surely you don't want her to see her dad in prison. No, I don't want to go to prison either, but I can't obey what you've given me to do. He says, listen, I'm going over here. <laughs> Surely you understand the idea that we can't let people teach whatever they want. He says, why not? Well, do you understand what the world would be like if we allowed everyone to be atheist? It's their choice. We can't force people to believe whatever. Well, listen, I've had enough of this. I'd like to talk with you some more, but you're going to jail. And they put a Baptist preacher by the name of John Bunyan in prison for eight years. And while he was there, he wrote the Christian classic of Pilgrim's Progress, writing it on milk stoppers. They, instead of putting a cork, the people would put um, paper on it. And he would use the dried milk on visible ink and uh, write Pilgrim's Progress. Then when you would put it next to heat, it would come up. And he wrote the entire classic from jail in that manner. You say, but, but, but what? He was submitting to God. And look at the influence that he had because he submitted. There's a power in submission. There's a power that works. If you study Christian martyrs, you would watch Christians who would be arrested for this or that. And they would be put up on the stake and they would put the fire and allow it to come up. Then they'd have a, gun, a powder of gunpowder around their neck. So as the fire would come up and it finally get hot enough, high enough, that it would catch the gunpowder and blow off their head. And yet during the time that they're on fire, they're singing hymns and quoting scripture. And they would die praising God so much that the soldiers who put them on the stake would go to their superiors and say, can you put us up on the stake? Why? Because whatever they have, that's what we want. And many of the soldiers came to know Christ in disregard to their religious leaders because of the testimony of people who submitted to God even unto death. There's a power in submission. There's an influence with submission, which we see in 1 Peter chapter number 3. That here's a lady who the husband won't go to church. She won't listen to Bible. She's quoted it. She's taken the Bible. It hasn't worked. But what will work? When she submits and follows after Christ. And changes how she responds to her husband. And now her husband says, I get saved because I saw someone behave like a Christian. The greatest evidence that biblical Christianity works is the evidence of a changed life. People at work watch us. People in our families know us. And when they see the changes, they notice that there's something different about it. That we no longer respond like we used to. We no longer believe like we want to. We no longer act like we used to. Notice as we see the rest of the text, 1 Peter chapter number 2. Notice with me in verse 13. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors, even or as unto them that are sent by him. Who's that by him? By the Lord. God is the one who places biblical authority in our life, right or wrong. 
God places that biblical authority in our life. Sent by him for the punishment of evildoers. Now we understand government's job is to punish evildoers. And for the praise of them that do well. For this is the will of God. That with well-doing you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. How do we put to silence the ignorance? By the difference in our behavior as we follow after Christ. That we respond differently. We behave differently. There's something to it. And they cannot fight against that person is behaving differently than what they should be. They're behaving differently than what we expected. They can't argue against that. When our faith is real, even in the hard times, they can't fight against that. Notice in verse 16, as free, not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness but as the servants of God. We understand that God has given us liberty. We have the freedom to behave as we all want, but he did not give it to us for the uh, allowing for us to sin. He gave us the freedom to choose to behave like him. We could follow him by choice. And there's a difference to it. We're not, you're not twisted your arm to come to church today. At least I'm not expecting that someone dragged you to church. If you're a teenager, maybe, but... You understand, you came to church by your own voluntary volition. No one makes you read your Bible. I mean, you could be encouraged to read your Bible, but no one puts the Bible there, opens your eyes and says, tip. All right? God has given you the freedom. And so because we have the freedom, some people don't go to church. Because we have the freedom, some people don't read their Bible. That's part of the thing of freedom. But God has given it to us for the purpose of choosing him and choosing to follow after him. Notice as it goes on, verse 17, honor the king, love the brotherhood, fear God, or honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. There is a difference in our life when we submit unto the Lord, and that will show up in how we respond to authority. Remember, it is not your job to fix authority. That's God's job. But you can trust him. I think part of the problem that Christians have when authority is wrong, whether it's a governor that we don't like, a president we don't like, rules that may come down that we don't like. Part of the problem is that we honestly don't feel like we can trust God. So we feel like we have to fix it ourselves when it is not our responsibility. Now, I understand in America, we've got great freedoms. We can vote. We can protest properly. There are things that we can do that are within the laws and the bounds that we have. But if not, it's still fixed the same. We can trust God. The problem is, is that we don't feel like we can. And if we can't, then I have the responsibility to fix authority. But that's what everyone thinks. So we don't behave any differently than the rest of the world. That's where it goes down to. Can you trust God? And may I give you the encouragement? God can do a lot better job of changing authority or changing anyone's life than you ever can. Can you let him be God? Thank you for listening to this audio message. This is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me beg you to take the time 
to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are saved, I encourage you to make a decision in your life to help you get closer with the Lord. If there's anything specific we can do to be a blessing or to pray for you, we encourage you. Look us up on the internet at riverviewbc.com. Once again, that's riverviewbc.com. Or if you would prefer to call us, you can give us a call at area code 920 Five three zero six three zero eight. Once again, that number is nine two zero five three zero six three zero eight. If there's anything we can do to be a blessing or an encouragement to you, please let us know. We would love to make ourselves available. Thank you.